Well, welcome. It is great to see you here this morning. That's right. We are doing VBS. It's going to look a little bit different, but in case you missed the announcement, you haven't heard somehow, August 31st through September 2nd, that's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening in our gym. We are going to be doing VBS, but it's going to be a little bit different this year, but different in a really amazing, awesome, by the end of the week, we're going to be saying, look what God did kind of way. We're going to be giving each family their own job site in the gym. We're going to mark you out an area for your family to be in with a safe buffer for social distancing between you and the next family job site. And in that job site, you're going to be able to do the discussion questions as a teacher teaches from the stage with your children or whoever comes with them, the friends that come with them there in your job site. You're going to be doing snacks together. You're going to be doing some family crafts together. We've got some activities that are going to be family versus uh, family member and some that are going to be job site competing against neighboring job sites to see who can build the biggest towers or different things like that throughout the week. So we're going to have an amazing time. We're uh, condensing the five nights into three. So we've been rewriting some curriculum. I'm really excited about some of those nights and some of the things that we're talking about and covering. So make sure you're a part of that. Now, we won't have child care available, so there will be no nursery or anything like that. But we don't have any age restrictions. So you can bring your preschooler. You can bring your elementary schooler. You can bring your college kid if you think they're going to benefit from concretes and cranes this year and your family will benefit. But come and be a part of VBS this year as family and get to have some fun there. Now, like we said, if your kids are social distancing together with some of the neighbor kids or some uh, cousins or whoever it might be and, and you've been together, you're comfortable with them being around, bring them out with you. You all can share a job site together. If we get some groups, maybe you've got a neighbor that's got several kids and you've got several kids and you want to come and do this together, we can put two job sites together and you all can be there together if you've been social distancing together already anyway. So we will make those accommodations. But because we are trying to keep those safe distances and because we only have so much square footage in the gym, we encourage you to register as soon as possible. So we can make sure that we've got you in there. Space is limited, and we want to be able to accommodate any needs that we have. So make sure you register. Online registration is already open. You can get on our Facebook page. You can go to our website, our mobile app, any of those things. They'll point you toward the online registration page. We've made it super simple for you to do that there. And if you are interested in being a part of VBS this year, there's not going to be as many face-to-face -face and hands-on type jobs, but we've got plenty of jobs because we're prepackaging things. So when you get to your family job site, you're going to have a job box there that's going to have your snacks that night. It's going to have all of the supplies you need for crafts, all of the supplies you need for your games and activities. We'll need some help packing boxes. So if you'd like to be a part of that, we've got some people who have taken each area of VBS and said, hey, we'll run with that. We'll point you in that direction. You let us know what you want to do. If you want to come and be part of our cleaning crew, uh, we've got people who are going into the restrooms after people go in there and wiping them down and keeping them clean. We'll, we'll need some more COVID crew people to come and, and help everything. And by the way, Jonathan said we ought to put this disclaimer on there. This video was filmed pre-COVID. That's why we didn't see kids in masks, all right? But uh, we're hoping you'll come out this year and participate with us. Sign up online as soon as you leave here today. Neil? Stand with me if you would, and let's worship this morning.
I know I myself have gotten discouraged. I've gotten, I've let the enemy kind of get in the way because the enemy will do that every chance he gets. But this morning, I want you to remember and try to think on these things that we have an awesome Savior. We have a Savior who has overcome the world. We have a Savior who has overcome sin. We have a future with him. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to praise this morning. So let's just do that. Hey! 
was crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet, now at His feet we
Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. Some wonderful music and wonderful lyrics there. We do uh, praise our resurrected king for the promise of our resurrection in the future. And the resurrection, really, he's already brought about in our lives. He's already raised us from the dead uh, and spiritually and given us new life. Well, today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Revelation, and we are going to be in chapter 11. Now, many people say that Revelation 9 is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book to try to exegete, but most people say that chapter 11 is the most difficult, and this is an incredible 
chapter for us to to try to to wrap our head around. In many ways, it's kind of like uh, firing a bullet in a in a steel room. I mean, it just ricochets shots from place to place, place so many thoughts. It covers so much of the scriptures, and and. and Getting it into kind of an understandable form, I'll tell you, is truly a challenge. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that that God keeps his covenant. That's really the focus of this passage. God keeps his covenant. Today, we live under the, the new covenant the New Testament. We just sang about all the one, some of the promises that we have in the New Covenant. But, but throughout history, God has faithfully sent his messengers to call sinners to repentance. In Second Chronicles chapter 36 and beginning in verse 15, it, it tells us that the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, that is Jerusalem, the holy city and, the, and that temple that was there. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Now that pretty much summarizes the the entire history of the Old Testament. God continually sending his messengers, continually being rejected until finally God brought judgment on his own people. But in the New Testament, God again begins to send faithful messengers to proclaim the truth of the New Testament, that there is forgiveness and there is hope in Jesus Christ if we turn to him. There were men like John the Baptist, Jesus himself, his disciples that followed him, Peter, John. There were men like uh, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Titus. And there's been a long line of faithful preachers from that day to this. God has had his people that he brings the message, his truth of of repentance repeatedly to his people. And in the future, during earth's darkest hour, God will raise up two exceptional and powerful preachers And they will fearlessly proclaim the gospel for three and a half years during the time that we know as the Great Tribulation period. And their preaching will, in essence, serve as as God's final warning to the unbelieving world. Their ministry will likely stretch from about the midpoint of the Tribulation until the just before the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And that trumpet will herald the the pouring out of the rapid fire judgments that we know as the bold judgments. It will bring Armageddon, the return of Christ, and the end. And as it were, we would say, as it in the words of Second Chronicles, there will be no remedy beyond that. But these true preachers will also be used by God in a greater way to bring salvation 
to Israel. Let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Uh, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. What mystery? What has happened to Israel? They were cut off without remedy. What, what's, and God made all these promises to them. Well, what, what is this mystery? I, I don't want you to be uninformed about this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, God, Paul is reminding the church that God is going to keep his covenant with Israel and that he is ultimately going to redeem them. He's going to, to save them. The, their hardening is only partial. And, and their hardening and their resistance is only temporary. In the end, all Israel will be saved, he says. See, despite their hostility, despite their rejection in the past, God is going to fulfill his covenant to save them. Now, that's really the comforting truth of the first half of Revelation chapter 11. You see, there are Two marvelous ways in which God in this end time is going to keep his covenant with Israel to bring about salvation of this nation. Before we look at those, let me remind you that chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11 and verse 14 make up an interlude, a pause a timeout, as it were, in the action. And um, this is uh, a pause that comes between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And we put up our graph here just to kind of show you where we are. So far, one of the things that we have seen is that all the, all the seals and even the trumpets have been very chronological sequential, one thing happening after another. They have numbers. So we know this comes after this and this comes after that. And But, but the, interlude, the interludes, they take us back into the tribulation at different places and, and inject, interject different truths and concepts and events in that timeline. So we've got this basic timeline where we've been looking at the seals and, and the trumpets, but now we're, we're learning that some other things are happening during the tribulation that haven't been, we haven't learned about in, as the seals have unfolded. And so, for example, in the interlude between the sixth and uh, seventh seals, we were introduced to the 144,000. So, this 144,000, we learned that though they are introduced at this late point in the book, 
In reality, they have already been at work the, in, the entire time of the, of the tribulation, and their work is going to extend beyond that till near the end of the tribulation. So this is something that's happening while the seals and the trumpets even are happening. So, so they're involved for most of the tribulation. And that's also the case with this interlude here between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We'll look at this on uh, our next uh, slide here. And today, we're going to see that there are numerous events that transpire during the tribulation. They're all related to God's fulfilling his covenant to Israel. These are all things that are happening. Now, I'm leaving them just there without their tags, just to kind of get you to see the picture. This, all these things are happening at the same time as what we have been studying about up to this point. And so from this point on, we're going to see in a greater way how God is actually dealing with Israel and how he is going to fulfill his covenant with them. So let me remind you, God keeps his covenant. Aren't you glad of that? And because God keeps his covenant, he will purge a remnant from Israel. He's going he's to purge a final remnant from Israel. We're going to look at the first, first two verses here of Revelation 11. And he says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of, the, of God and the altar and those who worship it. In it, excuse me. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, John is given a measuring rod, it says, like a staff. Now, the word rod translates um, or refers to a reed that grew in the uh, Jordan Valley to a height of about 15, 20 feet. And it was a lot like bamboo. It was, uh, it was very um, sturdy, hollow, light. It, it, it made an ideal measuring stick, as it were. And the act of measuring here is obviously uh, symbolic because he's told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers. So you can't wor- measure worshipers uh, with, a, with a stick. And it's, it's a symbol. You say, what does it represent? Well, it represents God's ownership. God is claiming what is being measured for his use. Now, we do the same thing today. Suppose you want to put a fence on your, on your property, but you have a, a dispute with your neighbor over the property line. So what do you do? Well, you hire a surveyor who comes in and measures the land, as it were, and establishes the boundaries. And then once it has been established that this is your property, then you are free to put the fence that you want on there. You own that land, so you have that right to do that. And you see, the same thing is is happening here in the sense of that God is measuring out, surveying out, marking out his people, the ones that that belong to him, that are a part of the Jewish community. 
And so he's, he's the ones who are worshiping, the ones who are true believers. And so the question then comes, what does that temple and the altar and the worshipers represent? Well, they represent the remnant of Israel. Now, the remnant is not everybody that was in Israel, but it's the, the people who will be saved, the people who will turn to him in faith. So in this context, the temple is in the holy city, which is Jerusalem. And it, stand, and it stands in contrast to the outer court, he says, which has been given to the nations or the Gentiles. So what we have here, see, is the, a contrast between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And God has surveyed out and determined the ones that are truly his. And he has marked out a remnant in Israel symbolized by these worshipers in the temple for his salvation, for preservation, and for his favor. Now, if you look back in your text here, John says literally in the, in the Greek text, he says, I was given a measuring reed like a rod. Now, rod, that word that's translated rod, it, re, it can refer to a staff like a shepherd uses to uh, divide his sheep or to tend his sheep. It can also refer to a, a scepter like a king uses to decide issues between people. That scepter in that day was kind of like the gavel of a judge in our day. But its primary use is that of chastisement. You heard spare the rod and spoil the child. All through Proverbs, you get that word, the rod. It was used for discipline. It was also used for animals to prod. Come on, get along, you... you uh, dumb donkey. You know, that's, that's the picture here. It's, it's a picture of chastisement. And in the context, God is using the judgments of the tribulation as a tool to purge out the, the believers from Israel, the, the remnant, as it were. This is the tool that he's using to separate them out. To purge them. Now, uh, if we put up our next slide, we'll see that this is really one of the primary purposes of the tribulation. The whole tribulation is really, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time when God is bringing discipline, God is bringing judgment on these people, and, it, and it's he's putting them through the fire, and he's going to pull out of that fire the true believers. And so really, you see what this is happening the entire tribulation, not just in this moment. And the worshipers in John's vision depict a remnant of believing Jews alive in the tri- during the tribulation who are worshiping God. Now, think about this. The presence of the temple in this vision of the tribulation was encouraging, must have been encouraging to John because, see, the, the, just about 25 years earlier, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. I mean, it, there was no temple. It had been totally razed. And so the encouraging thing here is this temple is going to be rebuilt. And the Bible mentions five temples 
There was Solomon who built the first temple. Uh, Zerubbabel, he built the second temple after they returned from the exile. Then you have Herod who built the temple during the time of Christ. Then the, the temple of John, it's the tribulation temple here, in John's vision, uh, is one that will be built during the time of the tribulation. And along with it, the, the sacrifices that go along with that will be restored. And then the Lord himself will build the fifth temple, the final temple in the millennium. So here's what we have. Look again, our our little graph. Uh, The temple is rebuilt. So here's a next event, another event that is occurring during this time. It's, It's rebuilt under the support and the protection of Antichrist. And you remember what happened in that first seal? There's a piece, a false piece And one of the things that probably this piece is going to focus around is the peace in the Middle East. And under this protection, under the uh, support of the Antichrist, then this temple will be rebuilt. See, right now there, there, there is a real problem. There's a real problem to rebuilding the temple because there is a, a, Turkish, a, 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 a Muslim temple there called the Dome of the Rock in the area where that temple would be built. And if the Jews were to come in and take that now, just imagine what that would happen in this political climate. But in that time, in the tribulation, under the support of the Antichrist, who is seeking to take control of the world, and this is be the, one of the ways he'll be accepted, is through this peace, this temple will be allowed to begin to be rebuilt. And, but during the, uh, that time of rebuilding the temple, we're going to have a reawakening or a kind of a revival as it were. And so the reinstitution of the temple and, and the, the, the idea that people, well, hey, we used to sacrifice in this temple and the whole idea of the sacrificial system see, is going to begin to work in the minds and the hearts of many other people, not just the, uh, really conservative Jews, but they're going to begin to think about this. And then they're going to begin to think, you know, the blood of bulls and goats really can't take away sin. It's going to be again to God's going to begin to work in their minds and their hearts. And God will use this dissatisfaction to prepare their hearts for that day when according to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, he will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. He's going to pour out his spirit of grace on them. He's going to keep his covenant. And, and ironically, the, the God, people that are going back to the temple, to the Old Testament type of worship, are going to be suddenly confronted with the reality of what that really meant. Of who Christ is. And then chapter 13 and verse 1, he goes, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. They will begin to turn to Christ. But when they begin to turn to Christ, this is going to cause a real problem because the Antichrist, the beast, is going to become intensely jealous. See that on our next slide. 
But the, the, this reawakening of interest in the true Messiah is going to just provoke the, the Antichrist. And as more and more Jews return to the temple, it's going to infuriate him greater and greater. And then is going to come, at the midpoint of the tribulation, a halt to the worship and a desecration of the temple, what we know as the abomination of desolation. We'll put that up. There you go. And set himself up as the only acceptable object of worship. Y'all with me? Is this making sense? Okay, so all these things go together. And then John's measuring of the temple symbolizes this marking out from this group of people, the true believers, the remnant that God is going to save. Again, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8 says, uh, he wrote of that day, and he says, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third of it will be left in it. You know what that is? That's the remnant. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. There's God purging them. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. God will purge a remnant from Israel. Now, John's instructions on measuring the the temple includes a very important omission. He is commanded to leave out the court, which is in the which is outside the temple, he says, and do not measure it. In other words, he's told not to measure the court of the Gentiles. You say, why? Well, he explains there that it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now think about this. The 42 months, or the three and a half years, correspond to the last half of the tribulation. It also corresponds to the time of Antichrist, his reign, his rule during that time. That's when he sets himself up as God, and that's when he begins to oppress the world and especially the Jewish people. And and he says they've been left under this until the time of the the Gentiles has really been fulfilled. J- Jesus talked about that. In Luke chapter 12. You see, and what that's a reference to, it's, it's a reference to since the time, you remember when they were cut off without remedy? Since that time, Jerusalem has been under the domination of pagan powers throughout history. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Medo-Persians, the Romans, the British, the Turks, the Muslims. And now even though they have a... a, a Self-governing system, it's very fragile and sets under incessant uh, attack. We're in the time of the Gentiles. And, but the destruction and the oppression that will occur under Antichrist will surpass them all. He will be the ultimate rod that God uses to divide Israel into the true, into the sheep and the goats. 
And during the, the, that 42-month period, God will shelter many Israelites in a place that he's prepared for them. When we get to the next chapter, in chapter 12 and verse 6, we read, Then the woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's that three and a half years. And at that time, many people are going to be heeding the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, 15. He says, flee. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And he goes on to tell us about how important, how urgent it is. Don't go back for anything. Just get out of there. And so God, you see, is in the process now of purging a remnant from Israel. God's also in the process of purging a remnant today. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God uses all the adversity, all the difficulty, all the things that come into our lives, that these are things that God uses to draw us out from the world? And turn us to him? Do you realize that we are in a purging today in the world in which we live right now? God uses all kinds of things. God allows ungodly people to rise to power. Antichrist is the most ungodly person ever exists, but he's going to rise to power. And ungodly people are rising to power in our world, even today. God uses all kinds of things. Our our health, our economy, our oppression, persecution, lack of freedom. It can happen on a personal level in your life. It can happen on a family level. It can happen on a church level. It can happen on a national level. It can happen on a global level. But God uses all these things. And God is in the process of purging. As Zachariah says, we're in the fire. You ever feel like you're in a fire? What does the fire do? Fire burns up the impurities and leaves what's valuable left. And you see, that's the difficulties of life have a have a way. I just talked to someone recently who said, you know, when you're going through these difficult times, it gives you time to think about what really matters. And it does, doesn't it? What really does matter? God's purging a people. Maybe you're going through some things right now and you haven't thought about them. Maybe you've just thought about, you know, well, that's that's just the way life is. Well, let me tell you, friends, God is in control of life. And he's in control of all circumstances. And one of the things we ought to be doing is asking ourselves, what is God doing in my life? It's fascinating to think about what God might do in the life of Israel. But the whole point of this is understanding that God... God is working in your life, your life. What's he doing in your life? And he might be purging you right now. Let him.
Let him. Cooperate with him. Because God keeps his covenant, he will purge a remnant. And because God keeps his covenant, he will provide a final witness to Israel. He says in the first part of verse 3, he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now, here, God reveals another critical element in his plan to save a remnant from Israel. He's going to raise up, he says, two witnesses. Now, witnesses translates that Greek word uh, that we, from which we get our English word martyr. And so many early church witnesses lost their lives that that word became associated with, with death. Being a witness became associated with, being, with death. And so when you hear martyr, you think of someone who's died for their faith. And, and indeed, these two men will indeed become martyrs in that sense. They will die for their faith and for their witness. And she, he says God is going to grant these witnesses his authority or his power to carry out their ministry. And by the way, do you know that God has granted you his authority to carry out his ministry? He says, all authority has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples, and I will be with you, right? We got the, we got the exact same commission these guys got. Go. And there, there are seven characteristics, really, of this, this witnessing, this powerful witness that these men carry on. You see, God will provide a final witness through preaching power. In the last part of verse 3, he says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. And see that word prophesy? It simply means to proclaim or to preach. And they will preach the gospel with authority, and they will call people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what their job was? Preach the gospel. Do you know what our job is? Preach the gospel. It's no different. You might be someone's final witness. And let me just put up our little chart here. And you see these two witnesses, their ministry is going to cover the last half of the, the tribulation. That's what the the 1260 days is all about. And this will be the time when Antichrist is most active. Is that making sense? So, yes, this is a difficult ministry. And then they will, God will provide this final witness through passionate power. And I love this. It says they're clothed in sackcloth. A sackcloth is a rough, coarse cloth worn in the ancient times to symbolize mourning and, and grief and humility. And they, these, these are going to mourn because they will have seen the, the temple desecrated. They will seen, have seen the rise of Antichrist, and they will see all the judgments falling upon the world. They're going to mourn over all of that. 
But you see, they're going to put on the, the sackcloth as a kind of an object lesson that expresses their great sorrow for the unbelieving world that is receiving this witness but is unrepentant. There is nothing more sorrowful than someone who is under judgment and refuses to repent. Because not only do they have judgment in the now, they will have judgment for all eternity. And friends, it ought to break our hearts when we look at our world. Because our world is under judgment. Incredible judgment. And they have their little human efforts to make the world better. The things that they choose to do to try to make it better. And usually it's political or social. But what they really need is the Spirit of God. Because only the Spirit of God can change people. And and that brings us to this third way that God will bring a final witness, and that's through anointed power. Verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, um, this description is drawn from Zechariah chapter 4, where the prophet saw, it says in verse 2, a lampstand... All of gold with its bowl on top of it. And the seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it on the right side of the bowl and on the, and the other on its left side. Now let me just again give you a picture of this. I think we've done this before. But I just want to show you kind of the idea of what you're looking at here. Two olive trees. Olive trees are the source of, of olive oil, which burns in the lamps. And the olive trees are connected to the bowl, which is in the lamp, supplying a constant feed of oil into the lamp. And then that bowl is a constant supply to each of the lamps of that menorah, providing a constant light. You get the picture? So that's what he's, that's what he's picturing here, two olive trees with a lampstand and constant supply of oil. And it goes on here in verse 4. He says, Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 6, Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now that is important. Because whatever God is going to do, it is not by the might of men, not by the effort of people, but by his Holy Spirit. And so we pick up in verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 4, and he says, Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and, on, and the, of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered and said, uh, answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? 
Verse 13, so he answered me saying, do, not, I, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. You, do you get, you make the connection here? This is clearly these two men are pictured as these anointed ones who are standing by the Lord, what is their purpose? Their purpose is to make known the truth of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is anointed service. This is serving God in the strength of the the Holy Spirit. And these men do this. And Zechariah's vision had a near and a far fulfillment. The historical fulfillment, the past fulfillment, was the rebuilding of the temple by Zerubbabel after the exile. It was built by Joshua, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the the political leader. But Zechariah's prophecy also looks forward to the future restoration of a millennial kingdom, a millennial temple. The the olive trees and the lampstands symbolize the light of revival that is coming. And you see, there's a a revival. There's a purging out of true believers from Israel. These true believers are going to be the ones that God uses in bringing together the new temple and the new worship. Is this making sense? Okay, because I know that there's a lot of imagery here, and it can be really confusing. But there's, this culminates in the salvation of this remnant. Then there's going to be a final witness through supernatural power. Look at verse five. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine? I mean, now people look at this, and this is where people sometimes look at this and say, you mean fire will come out of someone's mouth and consume someone? What do you all think? Absolutely. You say, that just seems too unreal. Friends, we are talking about Holy God. We're talking about supernatural power. Do you believe that Jesus raised a man from the dead named Lazarus? Well, that's too unreal. Is it real? Yes, it's real. And he goes on. He says, these have the power to shut up. So that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. See, these two witnesses have amazing supernatural power. And when you look at the powers that they have, many have observed that the powers that they possess are correspond to the powers that Elijah and Moses had when they were on the earth. Many people believe that they are literally Moses and Elijah come back. Uh, Because if you think about this, um, Elijah called down fire from heaven, which consumed 
the enemies of God there on Mount Baal. Uh, 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 yeah. And, 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 and then uh, Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood. He called forth all the plagues before the Exodus into the world. Uh, Elijah prayed and it, they wouldn't rain for three and a half years and it didn't rain. Then he prayed again and it did rain. He had power over these things. By God's power. See, it's not by man's power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And in both uh, Elijah, he didn't die. He was transferred to heaven in a fiery chariot. Moses had a, an unusual death and burial by the Lord. Both Moses and Elijah appear in the transfiguration on the mount as a prefiguring of the, of the second coming of Christ. And you see, all of these things, all these supernatural signs of these prophets are given for one purpose, to confirm the message that they speak and to show that what they're saying is truly the word of God. And these these witnesses are authenticated by God's supernatural power. Now, whether they are actually Moses and Elijah, I really don't know. That's not the critical point. The point is that God provides this final witness with supernatural power. And then he he finds provides a witness through preserving power, persevering power. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And they and, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So you get the picture. These, these, the unbelieving world will desperately try to get rid of these two witnesses, but God will protect them until they have finished their testimony. In other words, they're going to persevere until the very end. They're going to be faithful even to the point of death. These men will, be, will persevere, and it will have an impact on those people. Now, and it says at the, at the end of that time, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war for them. This is the first of 36 references in the book of Revelation to the beast. Now think about where we are. We're in chapter 11. This is the first time we have seen the beast. But in reality, the beast has been present from the very beginning of the tribulation. He has especially manifested himself as the abomination of desolation. But here in the end, he is going to be involved with these two witnesses, and he will, he will make war with them and overcome them. And so he is introduced here 
with an emphasis on his origin. He is said to come up out of the abyss. And you remember that, that the abyss is where certain demons were kept captive. Uh, this, is, uh, some, this is a picture of the fact that he is influenced by Satan. He, he, he has demonic power. He's not Satan because Satan is introduced to us in, in chapter 12 as a dragon. But chapter 13 tells us that the beast is a world ruler often called the Antichrist, who imitates the true Christ and rules over people and demands their worship. So the abyss here tells us that what he does, he does by the power of Satan. In contrast to these two witnesses who are working by the power of the Spirit. So to the great joy of the world, the Antichrist the beast overcomes these witnesses and kills them. And boy, they, they, they're, they're celebrating. They're having a party because these two people have been preaching the gospel and it just absolutely irked them to death. It, it was torturous to them to hear the gospel, to hear the truth. And they're so happy they are dead actually giving each other gifts back and forth. And they leave the dead bodies laying in the, rotting in the street. This is the ultimate contempt. You know, in the ancient world, exposing someone's, uh, your enemy's dead body was the ultimate way of of dishonoring them and desecrating them. Now, the great city is Jerusalem, and he says, mystically, or better would be spiritually, called Sodom and Egypt because of its wickedness. Think about it, this holy city <clears throat> has now become so unholy that it's like Sodom and Egypt, these two places that were known for resisting the Word of God, even in the midst of a clear witness, even in the midst of supernatural signs, and even under judgment. And they're still resisting God. And the, the footnote there that, that these two witnesses will be killed in a city where also their Lord was crucified makes the identification of, of Jerusalem unmistakable. See, Jerusalem will be the focus of their preaching. It will also be the focus of Antichrist's uh, uh, seat of power. So people all around the world, it says, will look at their dead bodies of these two witnesses. Now you can, I mean, I think we can imagine that without any problem today with satellite TV uh, or other kinds of visual media. You know, everybody's got it right there in their hand, watching it over and over. And, it, and, and, and in a morbid display of contempt, they will not allow their bodies to be buried because they want to, they want to, it's like they want to get the crowds, they want to get the mobs to come by and look at them and say, ah, yeah, they're gone, they're dead. And they're going to exalt the beast, honor him for overcoming them. He's really the supreme one. He's really the victor. We'll worship him. And incredibly, those who dwelt on the earth, and that, remember, that's a technical term for the unbelieving in the book of Revelation. It says, we'll rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So this, uh, this is just an emotional response that graphically pictures their rejection of God. Number six, they 
of this final witness will come through resurrection power. This is, this is incredible. I know this, this, we need to get through this. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. So after three and a half days lying in the the breath of God comes into them, and they get up. And of course, great fear falls upon everybody who sees it. They're they're terrified at the reality that these men have come to life. And again, you can imagine that's going to be replayed over and over and over on on every television and on on every smartphone. It's just going to be on the internet. It's going to go viral like nothing has ever gone viral before. People watching this. And then there's, and then it's not only that, but then there's a loud voice that comes from him saying, come up here. You see these two preachers went, go to heaven in a cloud while their enemies are watching them. <clears throat> this two man rapture is going to be an incredible thing for people to see. And again, this is kind of reminiscent of Elijah uh, being taken uh, to heaven in a fiery chariot. <clears throat> now you may wonder, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> why those two, were, those two witnesses were not permitted to preach after the resurrection. Wouldn't that be a great time to preach after you just resurrected? I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the rich man in hell when he said, would you send, my, would you send someone to my brothers and tell them about this place? And he said to them, if they will not, receive the witness of Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even someone raises from the dead. God has given a final witness with supernatural power, with, with anointing of the Holy Spirit, with, with resurrection power, even ascension power. And by the way, you could be one of those witnesses you could be a person that God would use to bring a witness to the world. You might be resisted by the world. You might be hated by the world. You might be killed. But guess what happens after you're killed? You are raised from the dead, and you are taken to heaven. And you don't have to worry about the, the world here defiling your name and saying bad things about you because when you get to heaven, you know what the Lord's going to say? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's going to be worth it all on it. And finally, this this last witness to the Israel is going to be through saving power. Verse 13 says, and in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, it's interesting that the term people there in, you know, the 7,000 people literally says names of men. Now, that unusual phrasing indicates that these were probably prominent people, maybe even leaders of Antichrist's world government. But as a result, this earthquake and the astonishing resurrection, the rest, it says, were terrified 
and gave God glory, the glory, gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that is a reference to the fact that of genuine repentance and restoration. The rest are the people in Israel. In other words, finally, this is the last purging of the believers. All along the way, God has been purging. God has been working and calling. And, and here we are, finally, to the last remnant. And so it all ends on a, a, that kind of a hopeful note. But then we hear these words, the, the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe comes quickly. Wow. Is this incredible or what? Because God keeps his covenant. He will purge out a remnant, a final remnant from Israel. And he will give that, that remnant a, a final witness. This doesn't relate, I mean, though it's primarily aimed, telling us about what God is going to do in keeping his covenant with Israel, it has a great deal to do with us today. Because what God did in Israel and what God is doing in the world today have incredible similarity. God is calling people wherever they are, whatever nationality, whatever language, whatever people, God is calling them to come to faith in him. And God is in the process, even now, of working in our lives, purging. God is in the process, even now, of giving us a witness. If you're hearing this today, God is giving you a witness. This could be your final witness. So you cannot look at this and say, well, that's for them. That doesn't relate to me. No, it relates to you. God has you here. This, this, everything that happened to Israel, he says, is an example to us. So what God does in the life of Israel, he does in the life of believers. And he's doing in our lives. God is calling people to himself. And friend, if you have never turned to faith in Jesus Christ, today would be the day to do that. Today would be the day. And all you have to do is lose your life. All you have to do is die. Come to the cross. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very appealing. Friends, it's the most appealing thing that ever happened. Just make us over. God totally changes us and transforms us. So when we come to the cross, we die, and God gives us a new life. And when we put our faith in him, he changes, forgives us our sins, and makes us a new person, and gives us a whole new purpose and a whole new destination in life. It's not easy. It is not easy. If it were easy, God wouldn't have to take the world through the tribulation. It takes the tribulation for us oftentimes to see that all these things that we're holding on to, counting as precious, are really not that valuable. And so God is purging. Don't hold, don't hold on so long. Don't ignore his messengers. Don't resist him, but believe. Father, we thank you today for...
your spirit and for the truth that you have revealed to us through your word. Pray for your people that be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, for those who have never trusted you, that today, that they would put their faith in you and experience true salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to pay attention to the, to the difficulties, to the hurt, to the pain, to the needs in their lives, and that they would experience your grace through faith. Lord, I know that there are many people today that are hurting. I know there are many people that are struggling in so many ways. And, and God, I just, I just trust you in this, that you know what you're doing, that you have your purposes, and God, may we learn from it what you want us to learn. May we be benefited from it. And so, Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your time. You are dismissed.